Over the past weekend, we had three former South African presidents delivering various kinds of political messaging to the country. And then last night, Sunday night, that is, we had the current president, President Sol Ramaphosa, also delivering remarks on which he reacted finally to the State Capture Commission's final reports and outlining what it is that the government will do by way of complying with the recommendations. So there's a hell of a lot for us as South Africans to try and work through to make sense of all the political speechifying that had taken place. And I thought the best way to do so is to give you a sense of the big picture in the first instance, and then perhaps in a couple of political analysis, audio journalism pieces to break down the constituent parts What I'm going to focus on in this entry is to really go through former President Jacob Zuma's rant, is really the best summating word I can think of, and to try and make sense of what is going on there in relation to the big picture, as well as to drill down into very specific parts of what he had said. And then in the next day or two, I'm going to do exactly the same in relation to former President Thabo Mbeki, as well as Khalema Mutlante. And along the way, we will also make sense of the current battle for top leadership within the African National Congress as we head towards NASREC at the end of this year and locate within that particular part of the audio journalism pieces what it is that President Sir Ramposa is attempting to achieve by not quite having a conversation with you, but speaking at you because he didn't even take questions from the media and how we should read in turn the state of the ANC and the state of the nation. Okay, so that's my promise to you for this week on Eusebius on Times Live. Let's get straight into this first edition for the week. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people all their children must know this are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. So I want to start off by reflecting on the media briefing that former President Jacob Zuma had organized and delivered over the weekend. And I was listening quite closely. I was taking bits. I thought maybe I can cut some sound, as we say in the industry, play some of it and analyze some of it, and really in detail evaluate each sentence, each paragraph, each thought, kind of the way you would now do internationally in many media platforms in real time doing fact-checking, for example. But I'm not going to do that because it struck me that in order to create meaning and to interpret what's going on, the best place to start is to tell you what I think the strategy is behind this entire performance. And in a sense, you'd be missing 
that a conversation about the strategy, if you were simply to dive into a sort of line-by-line analysis, soundbite-by-soundbite analysis, why did he deliver this particular performance? What is the rent about? And what is the meaning behind it? Now, I think the answer here is very simple, that you have a wounded political animal who is desperate historically to rescue his imploded political reputation. And this was an attempt to say, yes, I'm out of jail. I've served my time again. And I would like officially to record my sense of having been a victim, processes that were unconstitutional, politically manipulated because everyone hates Jacob Zuma. And by the way, your president, Ayur Ramaphosa, is actually a crook. So think twice about re-electing him. So that in the first instance is what that was about. It was an attempt to try and have a position on the political biography of the man himself by saying, I would like you to think about what had happened to me over the last year or two as follows. And you should be guided by my understanding of how I had been treated by democratic government in ways that are akin to the illegitimate regime of P.W. Boerter. So the details we'll come back to in a second, because I still am interested in the details. I mean, I, I just am nerdishly, and I know that you are too. But I really think it's important to ask yourself, what's going on here? You've got this aging politician who should really just be chilling with his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and here he is coming all the way to Joburg instead of just enjoying himself in the twilight of his life and a political career that is no more. And, you know, on a whole weekend morning, assembling the press to give him a mic and some cameras and to address you. And I think it speaks in the first instance to a desperate, desperate need to make sure that his interpretation of the latter part of his political career is seen as the final one, the definitive one, and the most cogent one. And I think that's really what the motive was behind it, the primary motive. There is a second motive, but I don't think, despite what some of my colleagues might think in political journalism and amongst the commentariat, I think the second motive, which I'll explain presently, is the lesser of the two motives. The first motive is really to say, hear me out, I've been a victim, and I really hope that history will have a sober take on me and be a bit more fair in its assessment of how the government currently, led by President Sil Ramaphosa, in fact is akin to pre-1994 regimes. But the second motive is a desperate attempt to maybe see whether you can influence the outcomes of the ANC electoral conference for leadership positions that will take place in a couple of months from now. He is, in the first instance, hoping that perhaps he can yet be part of the ANC's top leadership structures. And in the worst-case scenario, if he doesn't get elected onto a top-six position or into the NEC, that he can influence the balance of power within the NEC the morning after the final tally had been announced to delegates. Because if you do that, you can stave off any more attempts indirectly, there's no guarantees, 
but indirectly to yet have the corruption and other serious charges tested in a court of law. If you could find some sort of way of affecting the judiciary, I think it's a long shot because I think our judiciary is in a some difficulties, but a better state than what Jacob Zuma, whatever you believe. But also that at the very least, in a sort of political vengeance kind of way, that you can laugh at the incumbent Mr. Ramaphosa at best winning the presidency, but finding himself suddenly being ousted as the head of state, maybe not too long after the election happens at the end of this year, or in a better, less than optimal scenario for President Jacob Zuma, perhaps a proxy candidate even becoming the president of the ANC and then having the classic two centers of power dilemma, which can lead to President Ramaphosa as head of state again being asked to step down. So those are the two broad sets of motives. Let me summarize it again. The first was an attempt to try and influence public discourse by saying, here are my reasons why I am a victim. Please believe me. And if you don't believe me, hear me out. I'm going to make an argument to that end. And secondarily, to try and influence what will happen at the end of the year. So now I want to evaluate how successfully was on both of those different aims. And let's start with the first. I mean, the first is absolutely laughable. So laughable that I really, you know, just stopped digging after a while because I went back to some of my writing, some of the writings of um, other political analysts, as well as what experts on the law had to say at the time. And I realized, you know what, all of this stuff is publicly archived. It will take you a couple of minutes as a regular listener of Eusebius and Times Live to refresh your own memory of the legal detail that had played out when the Constitutional Court had directed the former president to listen to the State Capture Commission that had asked him via a subpoena to come and answer more questions, and he refused to do so. And so this idea that there was a sentence that had taken place without a trial preceding it, and that this was akin to the worst of the apartheid era when there was detention without trial, that's just absolute balderdash, quite frankly. It is absolute nonsense. Because the correspondence, you will recall, between his lawyers and the commission at the time, the commission was slavishly begging him, in fact, treating him almost exceptionally in his favor by demanding at any every opportunity that he take up the, the, the offer to go and present himself at the commission. I mean, the constitutional court showed such fidelity to just and equitable outcomes of its own processes, that even after it had found him to be falling far of the constitutional duty to comply with, with the subpoena, they even asked him to give input in terms of what would be the correct punishment. And even then, he arrogantly refused to participate and, in fact, maligned the judiciary every single opportunity he had by suggesting that it lacks integrity. 
So the same person then turns around and suddenly says that he wasn't provided with a reasonable opportunity in terms of the principles of natural justice to be given a trial, to have the other side heard, as it were, on the issues and not just the version of the commission in terms of the allegations against the former president for not wanting to present himself. And everything that he said over the weekend factually and in law, is nonsense. And the record remains. And the beautiful thing about written judgments is that they are permanent pieces of evidence that we can go back to and reread for ourselves and go and analyze so that if someone suddenly calls a press statement on a Saturday morning and tries to hoodwink you, you know you can get go back to the original sources to test exactly that. And when I scan just three to five pieces of legal analysis, and also had a glimpse of the judgment that went against him. I mean, it's, it's just very clear that the president, no doubt with the help of one or two of his legal team members, were reading out complete and utter nonsense in terms of reinventing the factual account of how things had played out. It was Jacob Zuma, not, in fact, the chair of the State Capture Commission that had acted in a manner that fell foul of the constitutional obligation to comply with the subpoena and to go and present himself. And so if you look at the different quotes and the different themes that emerged on, on Saturday, there's just no way anyone who even has room temperature IQ could possibly be convinced by the former president. So let's have a look at some of what he had said and why he had said it. I mean, at one stage, and he repeats this often, he says, I don't fear prison. I said to the apartheid regime, I said it again to the constitutional court, I don't fear prison. Now, you know, we, we, we mustn't fall for this trickery. This attempt to compare apartheid era, illegitimate thuggery on the part of P.W. Buerta with what happens after 1994 is an old trick of Jacob Zuma's. And he is simply reusing that trick to try and gain sympathy from the public, as if the public cannot think for itself. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that democratic ANC-led governments, one after the other, can't be critiqued, or that the judiciary after 1994 can't be critiqued. And I'm certainly also not, as awkward as the following point is, I'm also not suggesting that it is inherently wrong to point out continuities or thematic recurrences of how the pre-1994 state behaved and the democratic state. I think those discussions with due qualification and particular attention to particular case studies are really important, as awkward as they are. 1994 was a break from the past, but it wasn't obviously a very clean slate. So that, that I totally get. But in this particular case, Jacob Zuma is the wrong example to deliver that general point because there's no way at all that in this particular instance, in terms of how the commission had treated him, that this was a fantastic example of how the post-1994 government behaved similarly to the regime of P.W. Puerta. I mean, this is just an attempt to use political rhetoric to try and gain sympathy for a lost cause. So when he says, I don't fear prison, trying to sound like a freedom fighter again in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, we shouldn't fall for that. 
In the year 2022, Jacob Zuma is facing a very different legal system, one that is not wicked, morally, completely lacking in legitimacy, like the pre-1994 one. And in fact, his rights are respected, and he is the one who simply is avoiding every opportunity that he has been given to in fact have his day in court on the main charges. And when it comes to the State Capture Commission as a different legal event in his life, Again, it was an opportunity to go and present evidence to answer questions. And, um, you know, he simply did not want to comply. And in a sense, in fact, he wanted to be treated special, which would have been more akin to the behavior of what happened before 1994. So let's not fall for that. He also goes on and it says, and he says along the same vein, it made me remember the old apartheid days when people were arrested and imprisoned without a trial. Well, this is, again, trying to hoodwink you. This was not the equivalent of an apartheid-era police cop coming to our homes. I remember this happening at my home with my older cousin living with us, who was a member of his school's SRC. And then they knock in the early hours of the morning and just drag you out. No, absolutely no hint of what it is you did wrong. And then you're at the mercy of whether or not they'll let you go or keep you you know, on the basis of really obscure, immoral, badly drafted legislation under the cloak of legality, but really violating all natural justice principles. That is not what Jacob Zuma is facing. So the entire attack and onslaught against the judiciary that we heard this past weekend is just vintage Jacob Zuma. Number one, without any evidence. Number two, using the historical echo of how the apartheid government had treated him to try and pretend that the current government is doing the same. And I'm afraid there's just absolutely no evidence of that. There are two more things that I want to just end end with, right? And the first is, he warns us against what he calls a judicial dictatorship and says that Justice Zondo had, quote, failed his oath of office. And he also goes on to say that there's the danger that, in fact, many of the judges are simply being used for political ends. This is dangerous territory. I don't have a problem with someone saying, here are four reasons in law why this particular judgment from this judge or this court is not convincing. Judges do not have perfect epistemic authority. They are experts on the law, but it doesn't mean that they cannot be susceptible to factual analyses, legal analyses, even political and ethical analyses. I think that's all perfectly fair and part of contestation of ideas and the hurly-burly of public discourse and a healthy democracy. But the way to judge whether or not the judiciary is involved in political games in a bad sense, I mean, in another sense, you know, of course, politics is something that is infused in all institutions of the state. And I think judges are not necessarily immune to that. But you can't just wake up and say, this judge is a pawn of that particular political faction. You need to produce solid evidence. And if you don't like a particular outcome of a court case, that is not good enough reason to say that the outcome was motivated. You need evidence. And even if it was motivated, if you can't prove that it was motivated, the next best thing, which you should have done first anyway, is to tell us where, as a matter of legal jurisprudence, 
the reasoning of the court was mistaken. And again, Jacob Zuma did nothing of the sort on Saturday. So the attack on the judiciary is again a desperate attempt to make himself look like a victim and to make the judiciary come across as discredited and being an extension of some sort of CR 17 or CR 2.0 campaign. The last thing I want to reflect on is an area where I happen to agree with the former president. And he says right towards the end of the press statement that Pala Pala really is, you know, a apparent case of corruption and that you can't be a full-time president and, quote, hustle on the side. And he looks into the cameras and boldly says, quote, your president is corrupt and goes on to make the point that if he had done this, the media commentators in civil society would not have spoken about this for five minutes. It would have been an ongoing story and it would have been probably seen as a marker against him, deserving of him having serious possible impeachment against him or agitation for him to go. Now, I think there are two important comments to make here. The first is, Jacob Zuma, you're the wrong person to make this particular point. And I'm sorry, but that's not ad hominem. Political and moral credibility is important. Um, it doesn't mean that what you're saying, which I'll get to shortly, should not be taken seriously. But who the messenger is does matter in the real world. It may not matter in a formal logic class, but in the real world, it does actually matter. So when Jacob Zuma tries to talk to us about the state of ESCOM, the state of Transnet, the state of the state, blackouts that we have, what's that doing to the economy, the danger of private enterprise getting involved in fleecing from the state. I mean, you know, I'm gobsmacked. <laughs> this man thinks that you and I would imagine that the trouble with our country started the day he left and the day that Mr. Ramaphosa took over. Cyril Ramaphosa wasn't the beginning of our problems. It was a continuation of our problems under President Cyril Ramaphosa. And for that matter, President, former President um, Zuma himself wasn't the beginning of our problems. It had a longer history than that, which is why I also get annoyed as a citizen and as an analyst when there's ahistoricism in terms of how people respond to former President Thabo Mbeki. In short, which I'll come back to in the week, the ANC itself has been a hot mess for a very long time now, at least for the past 20 years or so, under successive ANC presidents. And so all of them collectively have contributed towards the current state that we are in. And in that sense, the analysis about the state of state-owned entities, as well as current corruption, that analysis coming from someone who was a key part of the problem for at least nine years and longer in different leadership positions, um, is a kind of hubris that I don't think anyone who is sober-minded can overlook. However, that said, he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. Even in his mediocrity, the current president is being given a free pass by many commentators and by voters and society at large. There's something about the smiles, there's something about the dulcet tones, there's just something affable even in his underperformance that frames the way we respond to President Saul Ramaphosa. And former President Jacob Zuma is correct. If it was a different character like himself, we would have been more muscular in expressing our disappointment and agitating for greater transparency, openness and accountability in relation to Malapala. <laughs>